us now. We've been talking uh, about the book of Ruth. Now we're going to open it up. We're into Ruth chapter 2, seeing really the, the second episode in this story and how Ruth's trust in God is going to play out. So I'm going to invite Sam up. Sam's going to be leading us as we read this morning in Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turns out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabites who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you, and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Byers replied, I've been told all about you, all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she'd gathered and it amounted to about an ipah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she'd gathered. Ruth also bought out and gave her what she'd left over after she'd eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. 
The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth, the Moabitess, said, he's even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because if in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to her servant girls, to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. Sorry, keep your Bibles open. Um, one of the, the, the keys to understanding these stories is to understand the flow of the story and to see how it unfolds. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, you'll be able to do that as we work our way through this chapter and, and see what happens in the life of Ruth here and how God is at work. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a place where you've made a big uh, life commitment or a big life decision, and, and after you've kind of committed you you found yourself in the place where you're thinking have I actually made a huge mistake have, have I done the right thing in this have I perhaps gone too far um, years ago we uh, made the commitment to leave Tassie lived in Tassie our whole life 25 years knew everyone here almost literally because you know Tassie uh, knew the place but we, we decided we had to move to Geelong. I was going to go and study at Bible College. It was very exciting. It was a, it was a big move. Uh, but I remember, I remember as we left, sitting on the back deck of the Spirit, uh, sailing out of Devonport. You know, it was a, a beautiful summer's evening. The, the sun was setting and we're watching Tassie slowly fade away into, into the evening gloom. And I remember all of a sudden it just struck me. Have we made the right decision? This is a huge choice. Have we made the right call? Is this a mistake? Is it going to turn out okay? Maybe you've had that moment. Maybe it's in committing to a new relationship. Maybe it's in moving house or moving state or moving country even. Maybe it's in a new job. Have I overcommitted myself here? How's this going to play out? Is this the right thing for me? Well, last week we saw Ruth make that kind of move, didn't we? She made this dramatic move away from her family, away from her home, away from the country she'd lived in her whole life, every security she'd ever known, all the way to this new land with, with her mother-in-law, to this, this place where she knew no one, where she had no security, no certainty, all for the sake of a God she barely knew. How's it going to turn out? What's going to unfold? And really the question is, what's he going to be like? What's this God that I've committed my life to now, what's he actually going to turn out to be like? Is this decision going to pay out? Now maybe you've asked the same. Maybe you've asked the same thing of God. You know, I'm trusting my life to him. What's he going to be like? Maybe you're weighing up that commitment. You haven't made it yet, but, you, but you're thinking it through and you're thinking, well, what's going to happen if I commit myself to God? Maybe you've recently made that commitment and you're, you're thinking, well, now what? 
Now what's going to happen? Or maybe you've made that commitment years and years ago. And you're wondering, is it really worth it? Have I done the right thing? Maybe, maybe the grass is greener elsewhere. What's this God who calls us to commit, who calls us to trust? What's he really like? What's he really like? Well, actually, actually, I'm going to give away the punchline before we even jump in. <laughs> it's, it's right here. It's not hidden. What's this God really like? Well, have a look with me at verse 20. Uh, verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her, her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Uh, he is, is the Lord there. Um, it's a little bit obscured in the, in the translation. Naomi literally says, uh, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. What's God like? What, what's this God that she's committed her life to like? What? He's kind. That's, that's the bottom line. That's the punchline of this story. God is kind. And, and more than that, we, we, kindness for us is kind of like this nice fluffy little emotion. Kindness in the Bible is far more than that. If you want a, want a Hebrew word to remember, you probably don't. But anyway, here's the Hebrew word. It's chesed. Don't forget the ch at the start. All you Dutchies will be very happy with that. It's chesed. Uh, chesed is almost impossible to translate. It is kindness. It is loving kindness. It is covenant faithfulness. It is goodness. It is favor. It is grace. It is love. One writer puts it like this. He says, it wraps up in itself an entire cluster of concepts, all the positive attributes of God. It's not just kindness. It is all of that. All that is good about God is wrapped up in this word, kindness. God is kind. And Naomi's proof of that is everything God has done in this chapter. So what sort of kindness does God show? Well, that's what we're going to unfold this morning as we work our way through this part of the story. Now, it might have occurred to you right at the start of this chapter that at the start, God appears to be actually anything but kind, doesn't he? I mean, look where Ruth actually and Naomi actually find themselves. You know, Ruth has committed herself to God. She, she's given her life in its entirety to this belief in God, but it looks like he's fallen through. You know, her and Naomi are in Bethlehem, yes, the right place, but they're in a really bad way. They're alone, they've got no provider, they've got no chance of an income, they've got uh, no chance of a future or security or safety. Um, they're, they're, they're living way below the poverty line, in fact. They are destitute and alone. This is a really hard situation they've found themselves in. Now, last week we learned that Ruth is uh, a pretty proactive, a pretty determined character. And this week we see no less. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead my daughter. Um, take verse 1, just kind of file that away in your mind. It's important, but we're going to come back to it. Verse 2, Ruth says, our situation is bad. I'm going to go and do something about it. We're in a lot of trouble. I'm going to go and sort it out. 
So she goes out gleaning. Uh, gleaning is essentially the dumpster diving of her day. You know, this is not um, something that people just did in their off time. It's not like going down to the, the highway and picking some blackberries. Th this is dumpster diving. It, it, you know, this is what desperate people do. Um, as Karina pointed out in the kids' talk, uh, one of the laws that God gave his people was when you, when you harvest your, your grain or your, your whatever crop you're harvesting, don't do it too thoroughly. You know, make sure you drop some. Don't, don't do the corners. Because in that way, those who are really needy and really desperate can get some food. So that law is a sign of God's love enshrined in that law. But it's also a sign of Ruth and Naomi's desperation. You know, that's actually how far they've fallen. They can't go to the shop and just pick up the day-old bread. They have to go to the field and pick up the, 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 the leavings. That is how desperate they are. And yet she goes. And look where she ends up. Look at verse 3. I'll read through to verse 7. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. We know about this Boaz, don't we? We, we filed that information away from verse 1. We, we know he's out there. And now look what happens. Ruth goes out. Now you've got to picture this, the, the, the town or the city of Bethlehem, uh, surrounded by fields, most likely all grain fields. So what do you do? Well, she doesn't know anything about them. She's a Moabitess. She's an outsider. So she just says, that one. <laughs> we'll go that way. I'll go and glean over there. And what happens? Well, as the narrator records, it just so happened to be Boaz's field. <laughs> Uh, literally, he, he, I mean, he makes it blindingly, obviously. Literally, literally, her chance chanced upon <laughs> Boaz's field. I mean, what are the chances? Hundreds of fields and Boaz's. And if that wasn't enough, it just so happened to be the very day and hour that Boaz himself comes out to the field to see how harvest is going. And he just so happens to notice this new young woman gleaning in his fields. I mean, it all sounds so convenient, doesn't it? It's, it's quite remarkable. And that's the point. That's the point. We're supposed to read this and say, wow, isn't that incredible? It's the narrator's way of saying, there is someone in control here. There is a hand guiding these events. It's not Ruth in control. He's saying, God's doing this. God is here. We, we, we kind of have to look at it from two levels. I think that's a useful way to understand this. On the, on the lower level, Ruth is, is making decisions to, to, to help her and Naomi out. She's, she's just going. They need food. She's just going out. There, there's no mysterious guidance. There's no miraculous sign for her. She just does it. But that's happening on the lower level. Here's the upper level. Here's how Proverbs 16.9 puts it. In his heart a man plans his course 
but the Lord determines his steps. That's exactly what's happening here. Ruth has determined her path, but God is directing her steps. She's doing, but God is directing. God is the one bringing this about. These happy coincidences are no coincidences at all. They are God's hand at work in Ruth's life. Uh, when I was young, when I was really young, uh, I, w- I was part of a really cool club. It wasn't quite a gang, it was just a club. Uh, it was the Thomas the Tank Engine Fan Club. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> it was so good. Uh, I kid you not. Uh, I, I was in there. I was in there for years. I don't know what you got as part of it, like a badge and a, a monthly calendar, uh, magazine. I don't know. But anyway, one year, one year my, my dreams came true because for my birthday... I got a birthday card from the fat controller himself. <laughs> he's just the controller now. He's gone a bit PC. He's been on a diet. Uh, but the fat controller sent me a birthday card. That went straight to the pool room. <laughs> or just the shelf. We didn't have a pool room. But it was wonderful. I was so excited. But also that year, um, because apparently my obsession ran very deep, I got from my mum a Thomas the Tank Engine birthday cake. Now, not just a picture of Thomas on a flat cake, but a full 3D Thomas the Tank Engine. I can still picture it in my mind, and it was wonderful. It was detailed, it was accurate, it must have taken forever. I remember how careful Mum was when we had to transport it. It was was terrifying. So two things I got that year. Thomas the Tank Engine card from the Fat Controller, Thomas the Tank Engine cake from my Mum. Now, from all of that, who do you think I figured loved me the most and cared for me the most? The fat controller and his card or mum and her cake? I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? You know, the fat controller's card was printed. Even his signature was printed. It just kind of had my name filled in at the top. But the cake, the cake, that was for me. It had the lollies that I liked on it. It was what I had asked for. It was by someone who knew me. It was personal it was for me it showed love didn't it and that's what we see unfolding in this story too God loves Ruth and we see that because he is personally involved in her story personally involved in her life we we don't see it in dramatic grand miraculous ways we see it closely subtly lovingly in the very circumstances of her life God is involved God is there daily God is showing his kindness by directing Ruth's life, even very subtly, so that she will end up in the place where he needs her to be, where he wants her to be, where she needs to be. See, God is not ignorant of her need. He is guiding her to the fulfillment he has planned for her, to this hope that he is drawing her towards. And it's right here that we see God's kindness. We see God's kindness in his guiding and directing of his people to the hope that only he can bring them. And that's how God works. And that's how God always works. Still today. This is what we read uh, later in the Bible in Titus 3. At one time we too were foolish disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures we lived in malice and envy 
being hated and hating one another. Uh, the, the writer saying, that's us. That's all of us in different degrees, in different ways, in different measures, but all of us in desperate need. All of us far away. We weren't even as lovely or trusting as Ruth is. We were far further away. We were apart from God. We were resistant to God. We were away from God. And yet this is what the very next verse says. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. God's kindness saves. It saves people who are lost. It saves people who are in desperate and dire straits. It saves people not because of their loveliness, but because of his lovefulness. It draws those people who are far away to the place where they need to be to receive that kindness, to receive that life. Here's how it's described in Romans 8. And we know in all things... God works for the good of those who love him. What is that good? Well, it is the ultimate good. It is that we would be saved, the best of all, that we would be forgiven, that we would find life in him and hope and a future in eternity, that we would be drawn to that and brought to that. That is how God shows his kindness, in all things working to that end. Even the small and subtle and unnoticed circumstances of our life for good. I mean, we think it sometimes, don't we? We think, I just, I don't feel like I see God working in my life. You know, is he, is he really there? Stuff, stuff just happens. My life just rolls on. Is God actually doing anything? Does he really care? I mean, imagine how Ruth felt in this situation. She is in desperate need, resorting to the most desperate of measures. You know, she's just stumbling to a field in hope of a meal that night. What are you doing, God? Where are you? He's right there, isn't he? It's his plan. It's his work. It's his guidance to that very field at that very time to save her because he is kind. See, we, all of us, you and I, we can trust that God is at work in our lives. He is at work in the choices that we make. He is at work in the coincidences we experience. He is at work in every moment, kindly for our good. He is bringing us to the place we need to be to grow near him, and to grow in him. Now it still is sometimes very, very hard to understand because sometimes we wind up in places that feel desperate. And sometimes we wind up in places and think, I just don't understand this. And yet still, we can trust that God is at work. Still we can trust that God is even kind in those places. Just because we don't see it, just because we don't understand it, doesn't mean that he is not there. 
There are no coincidences. There is no luck. There is no fate. There is God working in all things for the good, for the life of his people. And that's why we can trust him. Because he is God in the details. Kind, chesed, for your life. But we see more of God's kindness in the people that we see in this passage. In fact, we see it in the person that we see in this passage, the, the very impressive character of Boaz. I don't know what you think of, when you think of Boaz, maybe you picture, I think the classic picture is, you know, that, that rugged, good-looking, you know, a bit older, but in that kind of really cool older, George Clooney kind of older way. Um, a bit more buff than George Clooney. Long flowing hair, I don't know. Like, I don't know what women actually like, like seriously. I don't know if he was even good looking. The story doesn't say so. Maybe he was really ugly. I don't know. That, that would be kind of fitting. But the story doesn't tell us what he looks like. It does tell us what he is like. I'm just going to read uh, Ruth and his encounter. Uh, it's, a, it's a relatively long section, but what I want you to do is not read along with me. What I want you to do is, I, I know I rarely say that, so you're all looking very surprised. What I want you to do is just listen. Listen to this encounter and listen to what Boaz is like in these verses. Verse 8, and I'll read through to verse 18. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town. And her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. <laughs> It's a great account, isn't it? I mean, it's just one on top of the other for Boaz. He, he is presented wonderfully. He is a caring guy. He is a protecting guy. He understands Ruth's situations and her vulnerabilities and, and seeks to cover those. He, he recognises her hard work and she re he recognises the risk she's taking. 
she's a foreigner. I don't know if you noticed how many times in this chapter that's pointed out that she's a foreigner or a Moabitess. You know, in terms of social standing, she is so far below him, not even at the level of one of his servant girls. She's not really worthy of his attention. And yet he lavishes it on her. He looks after her. He feeds her. He blesses her. He even sabotages his own harvest so that she can get enough grain. I mean, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it? And, and, and she does. I mean, she comes home and, and Naomi sees her carrying an ephah, which means nothing to you. Uh, that's three-fifths of a bushel, which still means nothing to you. Uh, think 15 to 30 pounds of barley. You know, this is a sack of barley she's got slung over her shoulder. That's ridiculous. That is an incredible amount of barley to, to gain in one day. How wonderfully he's provided. Now don't, don't think you know, that, you know, that Boaz has his eye on Ruth already. Um, that's actually not the case at all by this point in the story. There's no hint of romance here. That's going to come. <laughs> don't worry about that. But it's not here. What we have here is simply Boaz doing what God commands. Simply Boaz living out his trust in God. And why is he being presented like this? Well, Boaz is being held up for us. Look at this man. He is an ideal man. Look at this man. He is, as Karina pointed out, the ideal Israelite. See, when God called his people together, when he gathered them as a nation for the very first time and met with them, he said to the people, he said, you guys are special. You're not just any country anymore. You're not just any nation anymore. You are my people and you matter to me. And he said, what you're going to do is, you are going to be in this world like my priests. That is, people through whom I am known. That's what Israel was to be. He's saying to them, you know, the world should look at you, should look at you and see me. I should be reflected in how you speak. I should be reflected in how you live. I should be reflected in your patterns and priorities of life. And what are they to see of God? They're to see in his people, that word we saw before, chesed, his kindness, his love, his faithfulness, as God's people live out his ways. God and his likeness is to be seen in his people. Anyone who encountered them was to look at them and think, their God must be something special. Their God must be wonderful. Now if we fast forward a few hundred, a few thousand years, we see that those words and that calling is transferred directly to the church. It's brought to us. It's in fact brought word for word. It's, it's given to us as well. So here's the question. This is maybe not a very nice question. Why is the church so average? Has something happened along the way? Well, maybe think of it like this. I'm going to show my, my age here a little bit. Uh, but remember VCRs? Maybe you still have a VCR somewhere. Uh, you know, that, that played tapes. Kids, this makes no sense to you. They were huge big things that could record a whole movie. It's quite remarkable. Hard to believe, I know. But it was incredible technology, wasn't it? I mean, it was amazing. You, you could not only play a movie, what you could do on a tape was you could record TV. 
What an innovation. How good was that? You never had to miss your favourite TV show again. You could just record it and watch it over and over again. Uh, in fact, if you were particularly cluey, and few of us were, let's be honest, you could even program your VCR to record your TV show while you were asleep <laughs> or on holiday. Like, that is, that is truly, truly wonderful. But you will remember that VCRs were always just that little bit disappointing, weren't they? Uh, sometimes the person pressing record was a bit slow and cut off the, f the, the start of your TV show. Sometimes the, the tape ran out and cut off the end of your TV show. Sometimes they left it unrewound and you had to press the button and wait for five minutes whilst it, you know, unless you had one of those turbo rewinders and did it in one minute, which still felt like forever. Sometimes it was recorded onto a really old VCR one that had been overused and it was starting to get a bit fuzzy and you got those cool lines or snow going up and down. It, it, either way, it never lived up to the original, did it? <laughs> you know, it, it never quite made it. It never looked the same. And so too with the church. So too with Christians. We're like that old VCR tape. We are copies, we are flawed, and we fall short of the original. In fact, and you know, this is where the metaphor breaks down, in fact, we are far worse than that. Remember what we read from Titus before? Remember what we were like before God actually acted in our lives? You know, it's, it's saying to us, we're coming from a long way back. It's not like we were once good copies and are slowly degrading over time. It's kind of the opposite. We were rubbish and we're being slowly made into better copies. You know, what it's saying is, yes, God saves, but there's a huge distance to cover before we look anything like him. That's why Tim Keller says so memorably, you know, the church isn't a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. The, the, the church is a place where people are being made better. We're not here because we are better. This is a place where we're being fixed, where we're being restored and made well by God. And let's be honest, it is a big work. It is quite the project. God has saved us to restore us to be like God so that once more people can know God in all his kindness and love and goodness through his people whom he's gathered for that purpose. Boaz was God's ideal man. Um, we know he's not perfect. He's, he's presented in this story in a very biased way for a very uh, particular point. He is presented as the man through whom God in all his kindness is known. But we have one who truly is the ideal man. That's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, who not only is an ideal man, but Jesus, who is God in himself. Uh, Jesus, who is in fact perfect. Jesus, the one through whom God, in all of his kindness and goodness and grace, is seen most clearly and known most well. All we have to do is look at Jesus and we see the perfect picture of God's kindness. We see him sacrificing to save his people from death. We see him protecting his people from destruction. We see him giving and loving and blessing. And our calling then still is, as Christians, as a church, be like Jesus so that people would know him. So that people would know God through us being like him that people would encounter us and realise how incredible God is. 
In many ways, Boaz provides a really good picture of how to do that. Boaz was willing to cross boundaries as an upper-middle-class landowner, wealthy, to reach out to this destitute, outcast widow. And so ought we cross those boundaries. After all, God's kindness came from the perfection of heaven, down all the way to us. Can our kindness stretch to the needy around us? Boaz sacrificed. We saw that. He gave up his time, his productivity, his, his effort and lavished it on this, this widow. So ought we. I mean, Jesus gave himself, didn't he? Even to the point of his very life. Can we sacrifice to help others? Boaz blessed. You see those words he gave to Ruth. Words that, that pointed her, not to himself, but pointed her to God. So ought we. Because Jesus came as God's own living word to speak to us the truth that leads to life. Can we speak those words and lead others to that life and bless them? That's our calling as a church. That's our calling as God's people. God is kind. His kindness is to be seen in his people. Will it be seen? And will it be seen even more in us? Not only to our own, but especially to those outside, to those who are different, to those who are in desperate need. So can you, should you trust God? And if you do trust God, what are you getting yourself in for? Well, it turns out you are getting yourself in for a God who is kind. You are trusting a loving and generous and caring God. A God who knows you, a God who works in the details, who works in every moment of your life. A God who works for the good, always the good of those who trust him. A God whose goodness is seen in his people, displayed in his ideal man in Jesus and declared to, his, declared to the world through his people as they strive to look through like him. God is kind, therefore he can be trusted. Ruth did and he rescued her. You can and he will rescue you too. But there is one off note in this chapter, isn't there? The very last verse kind of strikes a bit of an odd note. Just look at verse 23 with me. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Nothing against mothers-in-law. I just want to put that on the record. But if you are a young single woman, unmarried obviously, living with your mother-in-law, there's something not quite right there, is there? There's something missing, it suggests. And the question is still hanging, what about Ruth's future? What about her line? In fact, what about the line of this family? Yes, God has provided wonderfully in the immediate. What about their long-term future? Well, you're going to have to come back in two weeks. <laughs> 
uh, two weeks because I'm not here next week. Because God's kindness is still going to keep unfolding. God's kindness is still going to be shown. And in fact, it's going to be shown in even more dramatic ways. But you're going to have to wait, wait to see that happen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great kindness. Father, it is a kindness that we see in Jesus. It's a kindness that you've shown to us in his rescuing of us, though we were so undeserving, in his saving of us who were so far away, in his giving of life to us, to people who had no hope, in his restoring of us. Father, you are so good. We praise you for your goodness. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for still being nervous about trusting you, uh, for wondering at times if you've really got our best in mind. Father, you've shown it so clearly. Help us to trust you wholeheartedly, to commit our lives to you knowing that you are good and you are faithful. Father, as your people, we have received your kindness so richly. We pray that it would be seen in us so clearly. That we would be people who live it out. That all around us might see you in us and give you the praise and give you the glory. We pray this in Jesus, our Saviour's name. Amen.